or one of the top stories this past week from the election, there were many, uh, was Hillary Clinton's surprising loss in Michigan. Prior to the vote, Clinton looked like a shoe-in for that state. Um, some polls predicted that she would win by as much as 20% over Bernie Sanders. Michigan is an important state, and for many people, they thought that if, if she would win this state, it would kind of be a decisive victory and propel her to go on to winning the Democratic nomination. But she lost in a close vote. There are various reasons that people pointed to and why she lost, but one of them was just simply a lack of campaign effort. In other states, she campaigned much harder. The Boston Globe reported, quote, she was beaten in ground organization and message. The Clinton campaign did not work hard enough to engage voters. So it's safe to say that she just was simply unprepared for the outcome. She was caught by surprise, as apparently everybody else was, and lost the state. And I think if you could ask her, she would have done things differently if given another opportunity. Clinton's mistake is an example of the choice that all of us face with many things in life, being prepared or unprepared for a future event. A student is either prepared or not for a major test. An employee is prepared or not for a presentation. A musician is prepared or not for a recital. An athlete is prepared or not for the big game. A company is prepared or not for a safety inspection. And likewise, the Bible speaks of being prepared or not for a future event, the future event, the return of Christ. And it is Jesus Himself who gives the most fervent warnings to be ready for that day. Jesus talks a lot about what will happen on that day, but He actually spends a whole lot more time talking about how to be ready for that day when it actually gets here. Now, as we've seen in our parables with this series so far, Jesus uses parables to explain the kingdom of God, which is His unique ministry of redeeming people from their sins, and redeeming this lost, fallen world. Now, parables explain various aspects about the kingdom. And so far in our study of the parables, all of these parables have been focusing on the present reality of the kingdom, right? How you enter into the kingdom. Why the kingdom is received in various ways. But today, we change gears a bit as we focus on the kingdom as it will be in the future, in other words, the kingdom has been focused on so far the now. Jesus is going to focus on the not yet as we talk about preparing for the future kingdom. Now, this message I don't think could be any more important than we could possibly state here. This is incredibly important to be prepared right, for what Jesus is going to do when He returns. So, I warn you a little bit ahead of time you know, that this message is going to be a little bit longer, and I hate to do that when you've already lost an hour. 
But we really want to grasp this message because I can't overstate how important it is for our daily living. All right? So hang in there with me. So turn to Matthew chapter 24. And I want to give a little bit more background than usual for this parable. So in Matthew 24, Jesus gives his famous teaching about, that's page 829 if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, Jesus gives his famous teaching about the future, what is called the Olivet Discourse, because he was literally sitting on the Mount of Olives teaching these things. All right? So Jesus comes along and he predicts that the temple is going to be destroyed. The disciples ask when this stuff is going to happen. And so Jesus starts talking about the destruction of the temple, but then he looks beyond the destruction of the temple to talk about the end of the world. And he teaches in pretty straightforward you know, discourse here. But then he caps off his teaching by giving a series of parables talking about his return. Now, as we'll see in these parables, they all kind of share common themes, such as the need to be ready, the fact that there's going to be a delay, a contrast of those who are ready and those who aren't, and the fact that no one knows when he's going to return. But the parables also kind of will put a spotlight on a particular feature that when we take together gives us a full picture of how we're supposed to be ready for the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. Now, to kind of break it down simply, there's three key words that I want you to remember when we talk about these parables today. Watch, wait, and work. Watch, wait, and work. Okay? The first two parables, if you're with me now, are found in Matthew 24, and we'll pick up in verse 42 to 51. These two parables are very brief, and they touch on the same key idea, and that is this. We should watch because Jesus is going to appear unexpectedly. All right? So let's read the first parable. We'll just go through these very quickly. Verses 42 to 44. Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what hour, excuse me, what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the message is pretty simple, isn't it? If you knew that a thief was going to break into your house, you'd be prepared to stop him, wouldn't you? Right? You'd have something ready. The cops would be there. You'd have your shotgun, your, your guard dog. You'd have something, right? But that is why a thief comes unexpected. Jesus is coming like a thief. Not in the sense of doing something wrong, but He's going to come unexpectedly. And why is He coming unexpectedly? For the simple fact that no one knows when He's going to return. Did you hear that? No one knows when he's going to return. Please do not waste a single cent on books and videos that tell you they know exactly when Jesus is going to return. There have been countless predictions through the years, and you know what? There have been countless predictions that have failed every single 
time. No one knows. He's coming unexpectedly. That is why we watch. Then he tells us one more to reinforce it. Who then, in verse 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at that hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus contrasts two servants, a faithful and a wicked servant. The master departs and entrusts the running of his house to a faithful servant. He's kind of like the manager of the house, the house, the chief servant. He doesn't know when the master is going to return, and so he faithfully works to care for the house and his fellow servants. And what happens when the master returns? He's rewarded greatly, being promoted to the manager of everything. But in contrast, the wicked servant realizes, hey, that the master's not coming back, I don't think, anytime soon. There's a delay. And decides to do whatever he pleases. Getting drunk. Beating his fellow servants. The wicked servant thinks he can do these things and not face any consequences. However, the master returns, again, unexpectedly and kills the wicked servant. So again, The key idea is to watch because Jesus will appear unexpectedly. Now, in the third parable, the key idea is that we should wait because Jesus will appear after a long time. So this, the the previous parable stressed that Jesus, um, we need to be ready in case of an unexpected return. This parable stresses readiness in case of a delay. So, if you're following with me, go to chapter 25. It just keeps on rolling through here. Again, this is a series of parables that Jesus tells. And this parable is commonly called the parable of the ten virgins. There's a focus here on bridesmaids. And in this culture, typically a bridesmaid would not be married, so these would have been virgins in this culture. Alright? So let's read verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went out with him, went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor 
the hour. So let me just say a couple things about the marriage customs in this parable. What would happen would be that the groom would take a couple of close friends, they would go to the bride's house, they would have the actual ceremony there, and then they would depart and return to the groom's house. Okay, And this would oftentimes happen at night. Now along the way, the groom would pick up the bridesmaids, okay, and they would form a procession going back to the groom's house. And the bridesmaids were expected to carry a lamp. People think it was some kind of a dome-like structure that had rags that were soaked in oil, okay? And then they would, they would go all the way back to the banquet feast there at the groom's house, and so the, and the bridesmaid had a valuable service and that their lamps would be used to light, to bring light there to the wedding feast. So in our story, the virgins are waiting for the groom to pick them up, but there is, for some reason, a delay. Again, you've seen that theme so far, haven't you? This delay. But here's the most prominent we see. So the ten virgins had to wait. Five of the virgins were wise. They brought extra oil so their lamps would not go out. The other five virgins were not. They were foolish and didn't bring any oil. And so then they hear the cry that the bridegroom is coming and they rush off to a dealer. You can imagine, they, you know, they didn't have Walmarts or all-night all places and so they had a hard time finding any oil there. And while they're away, the bridegroom arrives, picks up the five virgins, and goes to the banquet feast. Eventually, the five foolish virgins arrive and are turned away by the groom. The feast had started, right? The people knocking on the door, probably some kind of gated door, they would have been seen as party crashers or perhaps robbers. They would not have been welcome. And the groom says these chilling words to them, I do not know you. Now he's not saying, I don't recognize you at all. He's just saying, I don't know you in this personal way. Friends, the groom is not being calloused here. The virgins were grossly unprepared for the occasion and they failed in their one duty that they had. They didn't wait properly. So again, the key idea is that we should wait because Jesus will appear after a long delay. Alright? So that was all introduction. <laughs> Believe it or not. That was all introduction. Now we're going to turn to the fourth parable because they all fit together. It's kind of hard just to separate them. And this is our parable for today. The parable, what is commonly called the parable of the talents. Now, the word talent doesn't refer to a natural ability. It was a monetary unit um, that they would use there in the ancient world, in the Greek world. So here the key idea is that we should work because Christ will expect faithfulness to His commands. In other words, we're to do more than just watch and wait. We must roll up our sleeves because we have work to do. In the meantime, now the parable has two parts. The distribution of the talents, and then the second part 
is the assessment of the servants. All right? So let's look at the first part here, the distribution of the talents, verses 14 to 18. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So we have this parable here that Jesus is telling. Again, talking about this return. And he compares it to a wealthy man going on a journey. He calls his servants together and he entrusts them with enormous assets. So clearly the master is symbolizing Jesus who is going to be raised from the dead, ascend to heaven, and then entrust to the church tremendous assets, right? Now I need to say something about that word servant. It's better translated slave. It's the Greek word doulos that always means in the New Testament slave, not servant. And the difference between a slave and a servant in this world was very significant. A slave was under the complete ownership and authority of the master, while a servant was paid for his services and could walk away. So I'm I'm just going to keep saying the word servant, but have that in your mind. And it helps us to understand the power of this parable. Now in the story, the master entrusts huge sums of money to these servants in terms of talent. You say, what was a talent? A talent was worth 20 years of of wages. Right. So add up a sum that someone would make, a labor, for 20 years. That's one talent. All right. And so he gives five talents to the first servant, two talents to the second, and then one to the third servant. And the talents were given based on each servant's ability to go and make a profit and to benefit the master. Now you might think, what master would give their slaves so much in terms of money? Now keep in mind that in the Roman world, slaves held a variety of roles. They were given education and training for both the slave and the master who would see their slaves as an investment. They would treat them well and they would be more productive. And so while a lot of them did menial labor, some of them, according to one writer, said that slaves were doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains. So a a master granting authority to slaves was not uncommon, but probably the sheer amount of money that was given was uncommon. So after he gives the talents, the master heads for a journey. And he gives five ta- he gives the, the servant who hears this, who is given five talents, notice what it said about him. He immediately sets to work. He starts getting busy there, and he starts trading, and by the time the master gets back, he has made five talents more. He worked really hard. He jumps right in. He works hard throughout. The other servant is given two talents, and he does the same thing. He works really hard, and he earns two more talents. Then we come to the third servant. He takes the one talent, and he buries it in the ground. 
say, why do you do that? Well, in these days, people would often do that. They would hide their valuables in the ground. So it wasn't like the servant was trying to steal it from the master. He just didn't do anything with it. He didn't do what he was supposed to. Again, remember, he was a slave. He was supposed to do what the master had told him, but he did not. So what is going to be the assessment of these servants when he returns? So this is the second part. So let's read what the assessment is of these servants. Verses 19 and following. It says, Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also said, and he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your servant. So again, we see here, just pausing for a moment, that the master returns, he settles accounts with them. And again, there's this hint that Jesus is going to be gone a long time. Just as a footnote, skeptics will sometimes come along and say that Jesus was mistaken because he made everybody think that he was going to come back right away. Jesus never commits to an immediate return. He just says, be ready, right? He gives no time indicator. He just says, you be ready. It might be a long time. And in fact, he gives a lot of hints that it will be a long time here. You be ready. Whether it's a short time or a long time, you be ready. So I don't think that really holds any water. So with the servant given five talents, he tells him that he had made these five talents more. And the master tells him, you've done a great job. Well done. I'm going to give you even more. Same thing with the two talents. Both are affirmed. Both are rewarded. And both are given even more responsibilities. But then we come to the third servant. And actually the discussion of the third servant receives the most attention in the parable. And I think that's the case because Jesus was given a warning concerned about those who would fall into that last category. He says to him in verse 24 and following, He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. So the servant gives a reason for why he hid the talent. He believed the master was a hard man, reaping where he did not sow, gathering where he had not scattered. So, what do we make of this accusation? Well, to begin, as I said, remember, he was a slave here. He was supposed to do what he had been told. He was supposed to do what the master had instructed. But beyond that, his accusation is really pretty groundless. Remember, the master treated the other servants very generously, didn't he? He gave them an enormous amount of money that they did not earn, that they did not deserve. And He never promised them anything. He just told them to go do a task. And so when they come back 
and report in what they have done, what does he do? Not only does he praise and reward them, but he gives them even more responsibility and the honor and the riches that would have gone along with that. And notice the phrase that they were to enter into the joy of their master. There's this sense, not only just, okay, you've done this, you punched the clock, and I'm going to give you exactly what you deserve. There's this sense of lavishness, of joining the party, of sharing what the master has. So I don't think there's really any basis for what the servant was saying. You say, why did he say it then? Well, the Bible doesn't say here. This is just my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. But I believe that his own disobedience twisted his view of the master. The servant did not want to serve the master, not because the master was cruel, but because he didn't want the accountability. And I think it's the same way with us and God. People can possess a distorted view of God. To them, God always appears harsh. But it's because of their own sinfulness. They're not really seeking to obey God, and then they complain that God is this and God is that, but they're not walking in obedience. So God does appear harsh to them, because they're not obeying. And you must obey God if you're going to walk in a circle of blessing, right? It's the same master, it's the same God, but they're viewed differently by the servants, aren't they? So how's the master going to respond? Well, he is not very pleased. He goes on to say, in verse 26, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap rise, I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So the, the master uses his own words against him. He's saying, look, if you really were afraid of me, you should have done what you were told. And if you really were afraid of me, you would have at least taken it to the bank and I would have gotten some interest. I think what he's saying here is, you really weren't afraid of me. You just were doing your own thing. You didn't want to obey, and now you're coming up with excuses. To close the parable, the master gives this final assessment of the servant. He says, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing teeth so the master orders that that talent be taken from the servant and given to the one who now had ten talents friends he was expected to do something with that talent it was not his in the first place. It belonged to the master. And because he did nothing with it, the master had full prerogative to take it and to give it to someone else who would actually use it for the benefit of the master. And then in verse 30, he gives the final judgment. He says the servant is to be thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here the parable kind of 
lifts out of the fictional realm and goes to the reality of eternal judgment. And Jesus uses this imagery here and in other places, this very graphic imagery of there being outer darkness, not a shred of light. We all know that's a, just a really unsettling feeling, terrifying, when you're in a place where you can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's so pitch black. And there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth, just pointing to the, the suffering that is going to take place, the judgment. Indeed, in the next passage where Jesus again discusses the final judgment, He says in verse 41, He says to the judge, Depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Let me just make this important point. In all these parables that Jesus is telling here, he's not, he's not talking about those who are just blatantly rejecting Christ and they're calling for His you know, crucifixion and His enemies and all. These are people, friends, listen closely, who are closely connected to the Christian community, the church. Perhaps outwardly they profess Christ, but they bear no fruit. And it's kind of an echo of the parable of the sower, remember? Where there was different types of soil where the Word of God would fall and fruitfulness was the litmus test of true conversion. And so the, the, the parable here, the, the servant had a wrong view of his master. He had made many excuses for his disobedience and he ultimately bore no fruit. And the same holds true for us. Can hold true for us. For someone who has a wrong view of God makes excuses for their disobedience and bears no fruit. Friend, let me just make sure this is not you. Ask yourself, do you willingly follow Christ's commands? All of the apostles say that they are a doulos of Christ, a slave of Christ. We are all under His complete authority. Do you willingly follow His commands or do you always kind of do your own thing? Are you waiting for His return? Think about it often. Want to make sure that you please the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, when He returns? Or does it never really enter your mind? Or you really don't care? The answer to those questions is no. You might be like the last servant who thinks he's okay just because he's in the household. He's hanging around, you know? But not in a right relationship. Friend, be ready, because as we've spoken about, Christ can return unexpectedly and you'll be left behind a judgment. While there is time, while the door is open, before it's locked, do what Jesus tells us to do. He says to repent of our sins, to, get, to move away, to turn around from our apathy and our disobedience and our excuses and finding fault with God for everything wrong in our lives and repent of that mindset and then believe in Jesus. Believe that He truly is the, the, the Savior of the world, God in human flesh who died for our sins. All of our sins, past, present, and future, all of them wiped away so that we can be made right with God and enjoy eternal life. 
And then we serve faithfully, don't we? And that brings us to the last thing I want to point out here. So I want to close by making three brief points about the faithful servants. First point is this. Our chief priority is to advance the kingdom of God. And the story, the servants, they weren't just told to work hard, but there was a purpose behind it, right? They were to benefit the master. Likewise, our lives should be characterized not just by hard work, but work that is directed toward advancing the kingdom. Our time, friends, our abilities, our money, they are all gifts from God, aren't they? We don't own a thing. We don't own a thing. And therefore, we must use them for His kingdom. Our business must be the Master's business. And friends, I would love to see our church living this out in greater measure. Saying, God, how can you use me, all of me, everything I bring to the table for the Master's benefit? The image that comes to my mind, and I think of this often for my own life, is that I want my life to just be like a big wet sponge. That God comes and He just wrings it all out for His glory. He's getting every last drop that I can bring to the table. Every bit that I can bring, I want Him to get not just a quick ring, but I mean wringing it all out. Getting that last drop that He can do. All for His glory. Are we doing that, friends? May it be so. Second, our labors will be assessed by Christ. In the story, the servants were given talents based on their abilities, and they were assessed. Likewise, each disciple of Christ is given a unique set of spiritual gifts, time, opportunities, and so on. And friends, the standard of our assessment is not the person sitting next to you, is what God has given to each one of us. And we're expected to be faithful. Never says anything about results, does it? We know God's in charge of the results, isn't He? But we are expected to be faithful. And yes, we will be assessed on Judgment Day based on our labors. Now, Jesus is not talking about salvation here. If you know Christ, you're going to experience eternal life. That is not the question here. But it does say repeatedly in Scripture that when we are standing before Christ one day, just as these servants were, we will be assessed. Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. In my years of ministry, I've noticed that this teaching, even though it's emphatically taught in Scripture, is oftentimes not embraced by Christians. And I think part of it is because as soon as we know there's accountability, there's a part of us that has a sinking feeling, uh-oh, I've wasted time. I don't like this, Right? I mean, we don't, we, wanna, we don't want a camera on our lives, so to speak, because we know that we waste this or do that or whatever. But it is the plain teaching of Scripture, and we can't ignore that. But I want you to have a different mindset, to see God not like the ser- third servant, but as He is. He is a generous God, and He wants to reward you. So that's my third point. Our rewards will be incredible. 
in the story, the faithful servants, they were given these talents. But it's fascinating that the, in the story, it says at the end there, after he gives them back a reward, he says, you were faithful in a little. 20 years worth of wages is a little to God. I'm going to give you a whole lot more. Likewise, our service is going to be richly rewarded. And I think here Jesus is speaking of the new creation when He returns and He sets up His kingdom, when He brings judgment and when He divvies out rewards to His servants, when He establishes His eternal creation on this earth. Friends, we sometimes have this notion that the new creation is going to be boring or tedious. Hello! That's not what I see in the joy of your Master. I see a creation where it's going to be bountiful and abundant, where we're not going to be sitting around bored, but He's saying, look, you're going to have even more work, more responsibilities. And we'll actually enjoy our work probably a whole lot more than we do now. We're going to revel in it and enjoy the honor that goes with these things. Stop having a small view of the new creation and look at the generous character of God and let it set a fire in our hearts for working hard for the King now. Scripture passages like Romans 8.17, Revelation 3.20 teach that we will reign with Christ. I don't know what that means exactly, but knowing God's character, I know that that's going to be amazing. Here's a great story in closing that gives a glimpse of this reality. It comes from our daily bread a few years ago. You might have heard it before, but it's just so wonderful. Speaking of God's generous character and richly rewarding His servants. It says, one stormy night many years ago, an elderly couple entered into the lobby of a small hotel and asked for a room. The clerk explained that because three conventions were in town, the hotel was filled. But I can't send a nice couple like you out in the rain at one o'clock in the morning, he said. Would you be willing to sleep in my room? The couple hesitated, but the clerk insisted. The next morning, when the man paid his bill, he said, you're the kind of manager who should be the boss of the best hotel in the United States. Maybe someday I'll build one for you. The clerk smiled, amused by the older man's little joke. A few years passed, then one day the clerk received a letter from the elderly man, recalling that stormy night and asking him to New York for a visit. A round-trip ticket was enclosed. When the clerk arrived, he took him to the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street, where stood a magnificent new building. That, explained the man, is the hotel I just built for you to manage. You must be joking, said the clerk. I most assuredly am not, came the reply. Who, who are you, stammered the other. My name is William Waldorf Astor. That hotel was the Waldorf Astoria, the original Waldorf Astoria. And the young clerk who became its first manager was George C. Bolt. Friends, our faithful service now, even when it seems insignificant, is never insignificant to Christ. And one day, He's going to richly reward His people. Let those glorious promises motivate us to faithful service while we wait for His return. Let us pray.